The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. If you're lying, you're dying. Right? This week's passage. This is a fun one, right? This is going to be a good one. So Acts chapter 4 and 5. Now just to catch some of you up who have not been here or haven't been tracking with us, uh, there's a lot going on in the church right now. It is an explosion of growth inside the church. Jesus has died and resurrected and ascended into heaven and, and he sends his spirit in Acts chapter 2 and it comes upon all the people and the gospel is proclaimed and the church begins to blow up. There's 3,000 people added there. There's 5,000 later. There's at this point over 10,000 people are part of the church in Jerusalem. And it's unbelievable the things that are taking place. Now, this is the time in the church that very often is considered sort of the, the, the idyllic time of the church. Even today as people deal with difficulties, and it's usually people that go through some sort of hardship or pain or... What is that? It's a feather. The Spirit is upon us. There are feathers falling, everybody. That's weird. It's coming for you, I think. Anyway, sorry about that. I don't even know where I was. Okay, so the Holy Spirit has come upon the church. It's blowing up in number. And this is that kind of time that, that a lot of us, when we look at the things that we're dealing with in church today, and it seems to be especially after we go through difficulties in the church today, it's so easy to look back with this idealistic attitude and look to these days as like, man, if it could just always be like this. But as we're going to see this morning, that church is still, no matter what it is, no matter how big it is, no matter how little it is, no matter how new it is, no matter how old it is, church isn't an organization. It's a group of people gathered together that still have sinful natures, that are still broken, that still wrestle with sin, even when they love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's still this thing we wrestle with, and so that means difficulty's always going to come with it. There's always going to be messes. And for those who look back at the early days of the church as the way that always ought to be and, and have this sort of idealistic mentality of like, man, in the early days it wasn't so complicated and everything was great. May I commend to you the book of First Corinthians. Like read that. And you'll see the difficulties that were there. there were, people were getting drunk on communion. There was an incestuous affair going on in the church. There was lawsuits, church member against church member. That's in the early days of the church. Sin has always found ways to infiltrate the church. Which makes it more important than ever that we lean hard on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just to get, if you will, to join the church, to become believers through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we stand on the gospel throughout and we're going to see that take place this morning. So, so the church is growing and things are going really, really well. And you guys know the story. Peter and John are going into the, to the temple and there's a guy laying there. Then he gets healed. His legs are healed. He's been crippled for 40 years and all this attention's happening. And then they get to preach the gospel some more and just incredible things are taking place and so this story picks up on the back end of that what we caught up from last week that that as the disciples are sharing the good news of everything that's been happening and and the church is growing and the gospel's being preached uh, we, we have this incredible incredible start to today's story now don't be fooled because there's a five in your Bible about halfway through the text that we're studying, we can look at this as like chapters of, a, I mean, you guys know how like books that we read, when there's a chapter, we, we think of it as a, a specific break in the story and now we're moving on to the next part, the next day, the next tale, the next character, the next whatever. 
And, and in here, most of the time in the Bible, I mean, that, that does happen from time to time, but, but don't forget, the numbers and the chapter breaks that are added into the scriptures um, were added by Bible interpreters for the sake of helping us in terms of being able to break down and segment and study the scripture. Um, so when the Holy Spirit came upon Luke in this case to write the book of Acts, he, he didn't go, okay, Luke, write this number, write 37, and Luke's like 37. And then the Holy Spirit says, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet, period. And Luke's like, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet, period, period, okay, period. What now? Chapter 5, chapter 5. Like, that's not how it went, right? It, it was, it was, in a, it was the, the story of Acts, and then those segments come later. And many times that's helpful. Sometimes there's weird places where that sort of occurs, and today is one of them. Because if you look at chapter 5, what's the first word in chapter 5? Everybody, one, two, three. But, okay, it's the first word in chapter 5. So it means that, that that's a conjecture, like that, the conjunction. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Remember that? So it ties chapter 5 I had a lot of coffee this morning. <laughs> a lot of coffee. So it ties chapter 5 to chapter 4, right? So this is a continuing thing. So, so when the Holy Spirit, through the person of Luke, wrote this, he's taking two things and he wants us to understand them both, but also in contrast to one another. So that's why we're studying these together. Does that make sense? And the first part's awesome. Like the first part is beautiful this one heart one soul as the psalms say in psalm 133 behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity this is what's happening at the very beginning let's just read the first part of it it says now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own and they had everything in common this is just beautiful remember there's like over ten thousand people that are part of the church and he says, out of all of these different people, and don't think that they're all the same. Because remember, when Acts, in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit comes, the gospel's proclaimed in what? Like every language. So there's great diversity in the church, right from the very, very beginning. And yet, in spite of that, everyone has one heart and one soul. There is incredible unity in the church. The Holy Spirit, like you read through the texts of the epistle letters that are, that are written by Paul and by Peter and others to the church, and you'll see over and over and over these connections between dependence upon the Holy Spirit in the church and the call to unity. Like unity is a big part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that takes place within the church. And here we see incredible unity. And like, listen, it's unity. It's not uniformity. That's really important to understand. Now, I don't know really, I mean, that's kind of a big thing. Like we all want unity. We all want peace and joy and everybody together. People inside the church want it. People outside the church want it. But, but we're really bad at creating unity. What, what we tend to do thinking we're trying to create unity among people we're actually trying to craft uniformity among people so what happens is is we'll take people who are different and we'll try to find ways of bringing uniformity into that so that we all get along it, it tends to dull down differences in many cases i'm going to give one example i hope i don't step on too many people's toes i swear i'm not pointing at anybody but i remember growing up in the south 
And I remember being in the South dealing with a lot of different, there was some specific racial issues and there was like a lot of stuff like that that was happening in the area where I lived and where I grew up. In fact, one of the kids that I grew up with, um, I remember playing basketball at his house and and we went inside to get some water or something and several of us did and he goes, hey guys, you want to see this? And he opened up his closet and his dad's KKK gowns were in there. And like he had the purple and the green ones. You know what I mean? Like that's like... That's like Grand Poobah KKK stuff. It's not just the basic white stuff. Like he had the boss ones, you might say. So we had a lot of that that just we dealt with at different times as we were growing up in different areas. Now, my parents, um, I don't believe, were, were, had hearts towards racism or any of that kind of stuff, but they were products of the culture that they raised up in. And I would hear things like, if, if someone was an African-American, but they sounded too much like they were for, from Africa, as opposed to someone who's an African-American, but who in their speech sounded more like us, there was commonality that could be found there. It wasn't intentional, but it happened. And you would hear things like, oh, he's so well-spoken. And and I'm not dogging the heart of people there, but I I know what was being said there. Because what's happening in that case is we want to be able to get along. And so we're going to find it over our conformity and in the ways that we're alike, rather than finding ways to love and appreciate each other, despite the differences that we have. That's uniformity, not unity. Do you guys understand? And, And look, it's hard. It's hard. We're bad at creating unity. Now, we can do it in moments. Like right now, all over the country, there are people putting on uniforms, right? And I'm talking about the fans, not just the teams, but fans of all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of different walks of life, gathering together in, you might say, houses of worship to celebrate and sing over their football teams. And they'll be the most different people in the world. But they'll get along for the next two hours. And I knew people growing up who were like some of the most racist people I ever met. But when Michael Jordan had a Tar Heel uniform on, they loved him. See, that's not real unity. That's like, let's find certain things we have in common and get rid of the other things and craft unity. Man-made unity doesn't last. It doesn't work. It doesn't ever exist. It's just we're really, really bad at creating it because the source of our disunity in humanity is much deeper than we really realize. See, now I've shared this many, many times before, but maybe some of you have, I don't think I have in a while, and maybe some of you have come since then. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back again. In the Garden of Eden, when man fell, the, the, the fall was much, much more than like one lie got told or one thing like that happened, and then it was just like a punishment. Like when Adam and Eve sinned, there was a fracture in what the Jewish people refer to as shalom. Now for us, shalom, it translates to the word peace. And for us, peace typically just means absence of conflict, everyone just getting along. But for the Jewish people, peace, shalom was much, much more than that. The biblical concept of shalom is way bigger than that. And and you can best summarize it in three different ways. Shalom means harmony between God and man. Shalom means harmony between man and man. And shalom means harmony between man and nature. And you see this play out 
really clearly in the story of the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. Because when in Adam and Eve sin, uh, they, they fracture all three of those things. So for example, harmony between God and man. Before Adam and Eve walked in harmony with God, they had this incredible relationship with God where they walked in peace and they were, they were partners with him in this work being done in the garden and everything was great. But then when sin happened and when Adam chose the fruit, when he really choosing himself, but we don't have time to go down that road today, when that sin happened, suddenly this harmony between Adam and God doesn't exist anymore. Instead of being together in peace, what's God's first words when he discovers this? He says, Adam, where are you? Adam, what happened? And, and what's God doing? Or what's Adam doing in response? He's trying to blame God now. now. One chapter earlier, God brings Eve to Adam and like Adam sings a worship song. He's like, Lord, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, this is woman. Like, he's so excited. And then that sin happens. God's like, Adam, where are you? And Adam's like, it's the woman you gave me. So the harmony there is broken. The harmony before there was Adam and Eve had, there was no sin damaging their relationship. It was this openness and trust. Even the nakedness spoken of in the Bible doesn't speak to just a clothing thing. It's speaking to shame and vulnerability and all of these kind of things. There was no need to hide. There was no shame. There was none of these things. But then when sin happened, what's the first thing they're doing? They're hiding from God. They're covering up. And then they're backbiting, finger pointing back and forth at one another. And they're arguing. Even in the results of the curse, what does God say about it? That there's going to be strife between them and their relationships. And so that harmony is broken. And then the same thing happens in creation, which is very obvious. Instead of everything working with him, now there's pestilence and there's difficulties and sharks bite and snakes are scary and all those kind of things, right? So all that stuff is fractured and broken. And so here's the deal. That all came from in like it was a heart thing. It's, it's not like something out here that happened. The, the cause of all that was a heart issue and the fracture was deep. And so only God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, can bring those things back together. Only through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross do we find harmony again with God. Only through the sacrifice of the cross can we find harmony with one another because we realize we all have need and no one's above anyone in some sort of fake hierarchy that we have. There is commonality at the foot of the cross. Amen? So, that, so this is what happens. And so when we try in our own strength and our own might to create unity, it's no different than Adam and Eve trying to stitch together fig leaves to cover stuff up. It's weak. It doesn't last. It's going to dry up and crumble. It's not going to last ultimately. Unity is found in God. The gospel is the source of unity. Because then we go, Man, who am I to look down on anybody, especially for whether it be skin color or the football team you like or whatever the case may be? Who am I? Well, who I am is I'm a recipient of grace who was given love that I didn't deserve by someone who is really different than me and actually infinitely better than me. So how can I, even if I'm tempted to feel I'm better than someone else, look down upon them when I understand the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because God, infinitely higher than me, instead of looking down on me, he came down for me. Huge difference. That's where unity takes place. God establishes unity, not man. 
And even when you focus on it, it just becomes like this wisp of smoke that you can't even seem to grasp. But when you focus on the cross, unity gets a whole lot more easy. Amen? I mean, man, go to Uganda sometime. Can't be any more different than the people of Uganda. But they are our brothers and our sisters, and there's incredible unity because we have all been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so this is what's happening here. We have this incredible unity that's taking place inside the church. It's beautiful. And the source of their, their unity and their peace is not in their identity, but in their gospel identity. Their unity happens because they've been saved by Jesus and because they're worshiping Jesus. They're focusing on Jesus. Even in this text, it says they're constantly preaching Jesus. So if you want unity, look to Jesus. Amen? So this is what's happening. Now, now their unity and all of this is, is actually happening or, or expressed through generosity. So in this first part, we see incredible generosity taking place among the people. And the surest way, honestly, to see whether there's been a gospel change in someone is to see, have they become generous people? I mean, the gospel is based on the fact that a gift has been given to us. And so are we then becoming transformed by that where we become people who give to others in all sorts of different ways? Practical love, not philosophical love. But actual love, let's say it that way, okay? And so here we see one of the best examples of the generosity of a group of believers serving one another because of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. And so I stole some words from uh, Tony Morita, pastor back in North Carolina. He's got some E's that are going to describe these things like a good old Southern Baptist boy as he is. And so here's what they are. Their generosity is extensive, empowered, extraordinary and exemplified okay extensive empowered extraordinary exemplified so let's take a look at these extensive their generosity was extensive in verse 32 it says the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common so their generosity was extensive jeff what do you mean by that i mean this Everyone shared everything always. It's the easiest way to remember it. Everyone shared everything always. So look at the text. Who shared? Verse 32. Now the what? Full number. That means everyone. So if the number is 10,337 people are Christians at this point, he's saying, hey, the full number of those people shared. That means 10,337. I don't remember what number I picked, but whatever that number was, that's how many people were sharing with one another and loving on one another and caring for one another in the church. Everyone. And then he goes on to say again, of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And how many people said that the things weren't their own? No one said that any of the things that belonged to them, the full number, no one. In other words, everyone shared. That's pretty extensive. Everyone. So what did they share? They shared everything. The text says the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things. So any of the things that they had, they didn't look at anything as like, they didn't subdivide in the ways that we can. Like sometimes we'll be like, oh man, I'll share these. These things are open ground to share with other people, not these things. You know what I mean? That's not what they did. They didn't look at anything as being off limits if it would meet the need of someone else within the church and the congregation. There was nothing that they would hold back. 
And see, this is where you see that gospel-centered generosity. Because on the cross, Jesus didn't go to the cross and say, for Jeff's sin, uh, I'll pour out like 7% of my blood. No, he poured it all out. He held nothing back. God did not even withhold his own son so that I might be forgiven. And so gospel-centered giving would look at the things that we have and go, what in the world would I ever hold back? Lord, everything is yours. So they gave everything. Nothing was off the table with regards to sharing. And then when did they share? The answer to that is always. Everyone shared everything always. We see that in there. It says that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him, they were of heart of soul. They had everything in common. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought them in the proceeds of what they were sold. Everything they had, they shared to the point that there wasn't a need. Like everything was just covered. There wasn't, there wasn't anything. There was never a moment where they're like, there's a need, but I think I'll withhold that. There was none of that. Everyone shared everything always. This is incredible generosity. Incredible generosity. I mean, look, generosity, I don't know anybody that's like, and is anyone here anti-generosity? <laughs> is there anyone in here that like, I'm, I'm down with all sorts of things, but that generosity stuff, ooh, boo. Like no one on earth is anti-generosity philosophically. Generosity is easy to believe in. It is hard to do right? Like generosity is hard to do. If everybody that says they believe in generosity actually practiced generosity, I imagine there would be, we'd be in this kind of situation where no one has need. Now, the answer to that, well, I'm not going to get to that part yet. Um, the, the reason that generosity is really hard is because we are inherently selfish. We just are. Some of us more than others, we, I hope, those of us who are walking with Jesus over the years have grown in our generosity and we're not as selfish as we used to be, but there's things, I don't care how generous you are with everything you have, I guarantee you there are things that you own or amounts that you might could think of that if someone said, I have need, you would go, well, I'm not, I can't do that. Like that's, that's just who we are, right? But what's worse than that is when we justify staying that way. That's the problem. So Jesus told a story about this that I asked you guys to turn to, Luke chapter 10. So keep your finger in Acts. We're not done by a long shot, but in Luke chapter 10, let's look at this. While I'm stepping on toes, let's get them all. Verse 25, and behold, a lawyer, now before you automatically go, well, (laughs) A lawyer. Yeah, he needs this lesson, not me. We all need this. Everybody right now, and me included, everybody say, this is for me. One, two, three. This is for me. And behold, a lawyer stood up. By the way, if you're a lawyer in here, I love you, and I'm glad to have you here at Heritage this morning. I apologize for that. Please don't sue me. Um, Teacher, for slander or something, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, well, what is written in the law? Your lawyer? What's written in the law? And I love how he says this, how do you read it? Because it's not just that you read the right words, but we have an interpretation of them, right? And so to a lawyer, that's a very appropriate question. Not just what is the law, but how do you interpret said law, he might say. So what is written in the law and how do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. 
And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. The greatest commandments Jesus would later teach. What are the two great commandments? Love the Lord, love your neighbor as yourself. And this lawyer, sharp guy, maybe he's heard Jesus' teaching at this point. I don't know, but he, he answers correctly. The answer is right. The verbal words he said are right. Verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself said to Jesus. So, so we already know right away. His motive is he's not doing all of that, but he's looking for a way to say that it's okay that he's not doing it. Right? That's what that means. So already he's convicted. He knows he's not doing all those things. And he's looking for a loophole in order to say, I'm not doing all that, but it's understandable because. Right? So desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among the the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed and leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he's saying, and I know you know this, but just really let this stuff sink in. Think about this stuff. Don't be numb to it, okay? He says, to justify himself, okay, we have to love our neighbor as ourselves. Well, I'm not loving my neighbor as myself. Oh, I mean, depending on what you define as a neighbor. So I'll justify myself by saying, okay, Jesus, I mean, love God with all my heart and love my neighbor as himself. But, But I mean, let's be specific though. I mean, Who's our neighbor? We're not talking about like everybody. And we're definitely not talking about people across town. I mean, Jeremy lives on that side of town. So Jeremy, you got South Medford, West Medford, wherever you live. I, I'll take, I'm in Central Point. Um, Aaron, you're in Central Point, but we're in different neighborhoods. So we'll talk about the difference lines there. We'll divide it and we'll lower our responsibility for generosity by doing that. Like that's kind of the thing that he's talking about doing. He's going to justify himself. And so Jesus tells a story. A guy's traveling And he's mugged and beaten up and he's laying on the side of the road and here comes a priest, the Holy One, the priest. Surely he's going to give an example of what's to happen. But here's this man, part of a religious system, and he crosses the road away from him and keeps on going. And then he tells another story of a Levite who came by and saw him and he passed by on the other side. And then in verse 33, he says, but a Samaritan. And, and for us to get that across, to like understand the shock value of what Jesus is about to say, um, I, I don't even know if there's really one. It might be, I guess maybe the best thing that I could say is like, um, and a member of ISIS came down the street and saw someone laying on the ground. Um, a Taliban saw someone laying on the ground. Like the worst of the worst of the worst in your hierarchy of who are good people and who are bad people came down the road and saw you maybe laying on the side of the ground. And as he journeyed, he came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. 
What Jesus is saying to this man in this situation, this lawyer has the right answers for what generosity looks like, what it means to honor God, what it means to keep the law, but he's not doing it. And he's trying to find loopholes and ways to justify his not doing it. And what Jesus is saying to him is like, no, 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 dude, it's, it's not enough that you just have a philosophical understanding of how to love your neighbor. What I'm calling you to do is actually do it. To actually be generous. Not approve of generosity, but to be, to act generously with one another. And again, we are selfish people. We need a heart change for that to take place. Like, because we're, we're no different than that guy. I mean, and, and here's how we know it. Here's the one that every single one of us is guilty of. Driving up to a street corner with someone holding a sign that says, I need food, and we go, he's probably got a car around the corner. He probably could have a job, but he's getting more money at the red light right here than giving anyway. And we start to justify the reasons why we won't give him money at the thing, right? Like, we've all had those moments. And, and I would say many of us have had those moments maybe when our initial feeling was a compulsion to give to him, but then we justify reasons that we don't have to do it. And if that one doesn't apply to you, there's others. There are. Like, this is all of us. This is for all of us. But in this case, here's what we see. This wasn't just about, like, knowing the law. Like, it'd be really easy to come in here with a text like this and just go, so stop it, heritage. Be generous. Be more like, and all this kind of stuff. But this is more than just an understanding, a philosophical thing. It's a deal that has to happen because of a heart change. It has to take place inside. I mean, this is why in Jeremiah 31, when God's giving the new covenant, what does he say? He says, for this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So think of it. The law you're talking to Jesus knew the law out here, but he didn't have it in here. And so in here, he's finding a way to reconcile the two, right? And, and in the new covenant, he's saying, look, that, that's never going to work. So, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put my spirit within you and I'm going to write my will upon your heart. In another text, he says, I'm going to remove your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. I'm going to make you capable of the kind of compassion that's shown in here. And you go, okay, well, how do I do that? By just like we talked about with unity, by not looking at the circumstances even of the guy on the road, not looking at our own circumstances and understanding those things, but looking to the cross where Jesus Christ came and showed us great compassion. Though we were enemies of the cross, though we were enemies of God, though we were in rebellion, he did not even spare his own son to die for our benefit. That'll change a heart. That's gospel-centered compassion that will lead to genuine generosity. And that's what's taking place in this story. Like the, the people of the church here, like they're being empowered. Well, that's the next one, the empowered generosity. Their generosity is not just real and it's not just extraordinary and incredible, but, it, but it's empowered by two things. Number one, it is empowered by the gospel. And number two, it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come upon them. That heart of stone has been removed. The Spirit of God has been placed inside them. They're constantly, as it says, preaching the resurrection of God. And so they're looking to the resurrection of Jesus as motivation. And it causes them to go, man, with what Jesus has given for me and then what Jesus promises to give me one day, why would I hold to any of these things and withhold from my brother? I will freely give to any of them because Jesus so freely gave to me. 
and they're empowered by the Spirit. Like that kind of peace and unity and generosity and love for one another, that's a fruit of the Spirit active in, the peop- in these people's lives. And so this is what's taking place on him. And, and you can see it right here. It says in, in verse 33, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. When God's grace is at work at people, people will get generous. They just will. And so that's what's taking place in here. So what have we had so far? We've had extensive generosity. We've had empowered generosity. What's next? Extraordinary generosity. Think about this. No one was needy. No one. I mean, over 10,000 people and there were no needs. Everything was just cared for, everyone. That is unbelievable. Now, let's explain for just a minute what this is. This is not socialism or communism, okay? It's not an ism. I remember when I was, uh, when I was in college, I took a, a political science class and we were studying all those different isms all the way through. And, and uh, I don't know, looking back now, I think maybe my professor was probably a socialist because, um, man, he sure seemed to like to talk positive about Karl Marx and about uh, socialism and about sharing and about commonality and, and income redistribution and all these different kinds of things. And I remember sitting there thinking, and I, I mean, I wasn't even trying to walk with the Lord then very much at all, trust me. But I remember thinking like, yeah, but like people are selfish. Like, oh, great system. Let's all make the same amount of money. And for a job, we just do everything that we want, but we'll share with one another and everything. That would be amazing if people weren't broken, fallen sinners who are selfish and broken on the inside. But we're never going to be okay with equal. There's a part of us that just wants more. And no matter what you do, that's going to happen. It's a broken system. This is not about equal distribution of I'm not, I'm, and I'm not trying to get political here. I'm not. But people take this text and use it as the reason why that's the answer. Isms aren't the answer. The gospel's the answer, not an ism. So I don't care what political system you put in place. There's always going to be unequal income. There's always going to be greed. There will always be needy people. Unless... We are unified by our King, focused on the cross, empowered by the Spirit, and we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is what the future world is going to look like when Jesus Christ rules and reigns here for all eternity. Like, that's what's going to fix this kind of stuff. It's not about this. And look, like, so many people will use those sorts of things to, like, throw guilt trips even upon the wealthy. But what we need to understand is that, listen... Any wealth that we have is a gift from God that is a blessing and a responsibility to use those gifts from God to be generous and to share with those who, who have need. It is not a curse, it is not wicked, and it is not wrong to have wealth. It's, not, it's about what we do with it and how we share with and whether we recognize where those gifts come from and all those sorts of things. And honestly, listen... There are so many people throughout the history of Christianity whose faces never made a magazine or a website or anything like that who may even never have even stepped foot on a mission field or any of those things, but through their gospel-motivated generosity have done incredible things for the kingdom of God that were desperately needed by so many people. And that should be celebrated rather than looking at people and guilt-tripping them for things like that. That should be honored and celebrated and encouraged because giving is a spiritual gift. 
So we're not talking about redistribution. We're talking about heart-motivated giving, not a system that just says, we'll fix all this stuff for you. Does that make sense, church? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's what that is. It, generous, it, it's just, it's vital and it's beautiful. And, and, and I, let me just say one more thing. I, I thought about this as I was writing it down. Sometimes we can value different things on a spiritual kind of ranking hierarchy. And, and sometimes we can look at things like, man, the, the people who are really spiritual, the people that go and do, and then we can say in a negative way, like, yeah, but he just wrote a check. Like he didn't go to Uganda and visit with the people. He just wrote a check. Man, giving is a spiritual gift that should be loved and encouraged and appreciated. That should never be talked down. If your gift is different, then go do that. But don't despise someone else because of their gifts. Encourage that. And to all of you who are generous here and give to Heritage to support the different things that take place, thank you. That is a spiritually significant act. Thank you. Thank you. Amen? This is true. So, but what an incredible thing, though. Like, think about that. No Christians sleeping on the street. None of them are hungry. No one is broke. No one is hurting. Well, I mean, maybe they're broke, but they don't have need. Their needs are cared for. They're taken care of. It's beautiful. It is extraordinary, the gospel-centered generosity that we see here. And then it's exemplified. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 36. We get an example, a specific example of this generosity. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. So this is Barnabas. Now we don't have to spend too much time on him here because we're going to get to know this guy really well in the chapters to come. But Barnabas is a key player in early church history. Uh, a lot of people believe he was one of the 70 disciples that Jesus had sent out earlier in his ministry. Don't totally know that for sure. Um, a very godly man and, and a guy who apparently his name, his name's actually Joseph, but the disciples and his time spent with the church because of the things that he was doing they changed his name in, in their like what they're saying is like man you need a name that really accurately identifies kind of who you really are and they give him this name Barnabas which bar means son of and the other word comes from nabi the word means prophet so it really probably specifically means son of exhortation it's been translated through the years into son of encouragement but they're both part of the same kind of parcel he's an encouraging guy he's a gifted speaker he can preach the gospel he's a gifted missionary he's an amazing guy and so as they see this guy and his gospel transformation they give him this kind of like nickname I guess you'd say to describe him and I wrote this question down if someone looked at my life and gave me a nickname what would it be we can all answer that on our own in our own quiet time this <laughs> this week right that messed with me for a little while if someone looked into our lives and gave us a nickname, Jeff, son of, but let's move on. <laughs> hey, but that's a good question to sit on our knees before God and think about like, man, who do I exemplify? What am I known for? Am I known for, for, for representing you and your characteristics or am I known for something else? It's good to know. It's good to think about. It's good to wrestle with those things. So Barnabas has this incredible legacy and he owns a field. And he sells this field and he comes to the apostles. And you even see it's an act of humility and submission because he comes to the apostles and he's recognizing even their role with Jesus. And so, so it's not just that he gives it, but he's, it's, it's symbolic of him giving his whole self to this mission. 
as he bows and lays it at their feet. It's as if you came before a king and you're saying, you're my king. Like he, it's an act of great honor and submission to them to say, all that I have is a, like, I'm in. I'm all in. All that I have is for this. I want to do this. It is incre- it's just an incredible act of generosity. And his action of generosity, the nickname, everything that's going on, it turns out is also enviable, if you want an extra E, enviable. Because then Acts 5 verse 1 begins with, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. (laughs) I just looked at the clock to see how much time left. Apparently I have 74 minutes and 59 seconds. Get comfy, get comfy. But a man, sorry, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife knowledge, he kept back some from himself and some of the proceeds and he brought only a part of it and he laid it at the apostles feet. Okay. So the word, but there is connecting the two. So, so we have this genuine gospel centered act of generosity and you have a guy who is even received a certain level of, if I can use the word, acclaim or at least recognition for the things that he's doing. Like these people have given him a nickname. The apostles who are kind of leading the church are like, man, you are a son of encouragement. Your name now shall be Barabbas. And people are calling him that. No, not Barabbas. I'm sorry, Barnabas. And people are, ooh, different guy. So people are calling him this and, and they're looking at him and like they're, they're honoring the work of God in this guy's life. And so Ananias and Sapphira see this. And seems seems like they want that because the the contrast is pretty clear. Barnabas sells the field, they sell the field. Barnabas has some money now, they have some money now. Barnabas comes and lays it at their feet. Ananias comes in, lays it at the feet. You see the intentional balances between the story? There's just one big difference and it's kept back. It's the same phrase, those of you that are your uh, Genesis, or excuse me, Joshua Bible students, there's a man named Achan, you guys remember that story? Israel has a victory and they're not supposed to keep any of the treasures, but Achan kept back some for himself and he hid it in the tent. Go read that story in the book of Joshua, it's a travesty what takes place. So he keeps back some of this money, puts it away, so let's say he had, I don't know, $10,000 for his field, that's a lot of money. We sold our field for $8,000 and bows down and lays it at the disciples' feet. The applause and attention of people is very powerful. Because think of it, I mean, why else would you do this if you're them? Like, I really wrestled with that question for a little while. Like, why, why would they do this? Why? Like, why fake it? knowing what's coming. And, and granted, we have, we have the ability to know specifically what's coming, not just the threats of persecution, but how it became actual persecution. Like we know how hard it's going to be to be a Christian in Jerusalem, right? But, but why would they do that? Like, just keep the field. Just keep the field. And that's even what the apostles say, isn't it? Like, hey, Ananias, why would you do that? Why? If that's so powerful, just keep the field. It was yours all along, wasn't it? 
And even more than that, like the money, the issue isn't that they didn't give all the money. The issue is that they lied and they, they, they lied to God. They lied to the Holy Spirit. That's what the text tells us. They lied about the money and they feigned a spirituality comparable to what Barnabas had been doing and others. They're pretending to be just like all of the rest of them. So they're putting on the same choir robe, you might say, and, and hiding the fact that behind their back is what they're actually keeping. And so he's going and he's doing this. And, and even the disciples are just like, look, man, it, it wasn't a number. Even after you sold the land, doesn't he say this? Even after you sold the land, all the money, wasn't it still at your disposal? What he means by that is like, look, it was, it's all yours. You could have done whatever you wanted with it. So why lie? What, why would you come and say that you sold this whole thing for 8,000 instead of when you know that you sold it for 10? Why, why are you chasing this approval of men? Why are you trying to be like and pretending to be spiritual in such a way that you're not? Why is it that you're doing this? Man, this is like, this still happens all the time. The applause of men and the desire for other people to see us as something different that we are, than we are within the church as more holy, as more spiritual, as more whatever the case may be. It is, it's a powerful, powerful drug. And the applause of men is a powerful, powerful drug. I mean, did Ananias want a nickname? He shouldn't have. It was a great name that he has. His name actually means, ironically, God is merciful. That's what his name means. Oops. And Sapphira, her name means beautiful. You have a beautiful name. You Literally, you don't need another one. Like what? Why are you trying to be something that you're not? Why are you trying to be? And, and guys, this is what religious cultures do. Like this, this kind of fake spirituality. It was, Jesus called it out earlier. So in John chapter 12, it says that Jesus was teaching about himself and he's proclaiming the kingdom of God. And in John chapter 12, verse 42, it says that many believed on him, but that word keeps coming up, doesn't it? Many believed on him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And so they wanted to look a certain way, Ananias and Sapphira. And they're watching the glory that comes from man on a man like Barnabas. And they're like, man, I want to be that too. Man, it happens all the time. There's people that get into church leadership because they like being in charge and they want the attention that comes. There's people that, I mean, that's just part of it. And it's no different than the Pharisees who, when they came to the temple to give, are ringing their bells and making sure everybody knows how much money they're giving. That's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. It's a lot easier to try to look like Jesus than to allow God to do the work inside and make you actually like Jesus. You know what I mean? It's easier to fake it. I mean, until you drop dead in the tent, I guess. <laughs> right? Because Jesus got back up saying they don't look much like Jesus at that point. But anyway, sorry. Um, now, is it, it's harsh, right? Like they drop dead. Is that harsh? Is that... Like there's people that look at that and they're like, man, that is too severe of a punishment. But let's just think about it just for a minute. The disciples tell us that they lied to God, that these lies are, are personal offenses to God, that devalue the holiness of God, minimizes their own sin as if it's no big deal to be able to do that. It devalues the cross where Jesus traded places with liars. Think about that. Jesus went to the cross to save liars. 
So it devalues that. They lied to the Spirit. And don't, make no mistake, the Holy Spirit is not just some sort of force like out of a Star Wars movie. It's a, it's a person with a personality that can be grieved. They lied to the Holy Spirit. Like these things definitely take place. And some people, obviously, naturalists and whatnot, will try to explain this away. Like, oh, they just freaked out when they were caught in their lie and they dropped dead of a heart attack. Maybe, I mean, maybe that's what God used, but there's no question that the people in this story clearly identify this as a specific act of, of judgment against them. It's not, it's divine judgment no matter what the cause used that led to the death. It was divine judgment that's taking place. So it's a fair question to say is like, is this too harsh? And I, I would just say a better question for us is not, man, how could he do that to them? A better question is, oh man, how has he not done that to me? Like, how has he not done that to me? Praise God that for whatever reason, in his wisdom and in his glory, you know, is he, you, we could talk about the theories about like, look, this is the early days of the church and it's setting a precedence that was really important. I mean, even the, the Jerusalem generosity is going to be copied by other people. And not many years later, Jerusalem's going to go through a severe famine. And other churches are going to follow the example originally set by the Jerusalem church and give money back to Jerusalem to take care of the needs of the people. So you could say that God's protecting this because it's a really important example down the road. Like we could talk about all those things, but when it really comes down to it, if I'm being really honest, I read this story and I just say, thank God that he hasn't done that to me because I'm just as bad. Like the same, those are the same temptations that I wrestle with and that we wrestle with. So instead of arguing and fighting and getting bitter at God about like, how dare he, how could he do that? That seems so judgmental and so harsh. It's better to say, how is it that he hasn't done that to me? Praise God for your infinite mercy. My sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And then say, Lord, change me. Like change me from the inside. Amen? Well, let's bring this thing home. Great fear came upon them. Sapphira comes in. We read the text at the beginning. Um, great fear comes upon them. And I would imagine, right? Because think about it. I mean, if you think about it, everything's been going pretty well. Like everybody's really just getting along. Things are just going great. I mean, imagine in a, like everything's going well. And then in the middle of one of our gatherings, someone lied and dropped dead. And then they carried him out and the wife came in and she lied too and they dropped dead and carried out. Like, wouldn't everyone here go, I don't think I want to talk right now. Um, oh, look at the time. I need to go home. Like, I would imagine there would be great fear. So what did they need? What did Ananias and Sapphira need? What did the church need? What do we need? Well, number one, the fear of the Lord that came upon them was appropriate. I think we all need to fear the Lord our God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that doesn't mean like, hey, fearing God will lead to intelligence. Wisdom is the ability to navigate life, making wise and good choices. And those who fear the Lord, that's where wisdom and the ability to make good choices and it begins. And too often we just forget that God's around. We forget that God has, that he's God, that he's Lord. And now I, I know this is where we then, like that other guy, we want to start to justify a little bit. And we go, well, I mean, fear of the Lord doesn't mean, oh, I'm afraid fear. Because God's our Father now. And by grace in Jesus, we don't have to be, we don't have to fear the Lord. Um, our fear means awe. Yes and no. 
Yes and no. I mean, even a good dad, most kids fear that belt. Maybe that's an imperfect analogy, but let me just put it this way. It's good for us to remember he's infinitely more holy than we realize. He is gracious, but he is holy and he is powerful. And our God, our loving, gracious, merciful, heavenly father hates sin, hates it. And the more we think about that and the more that we remember that fear of the Lord is good for us. And, we, and it's really easy for us to look at it now and go, e- even off of what I was talking about, like, thank God God has never done that to me. But that can slide into God would never do that to me. And that's where Galatians 6 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Like, we need to remember who God is, remember who we are, remember that God is holy. We need to fear that. Awe, yes, but fear too. Fear too. And number two, we just need, they needed, the church needs application of the gospel. Because we are more susceptible to any of this stuff than we think. Religious cultures will breed this. Like religious churches, it, it will breed this. It, it, we have to fake it and pretend to be more spiritual than we are because it's a religious environment where we all get our acclaim based on what we do instead of finding our identity in what Jesus did. And that's what religion does. They were still caught in religion. They're looking at Barnabas and they're like, man, he is getting a claim and we can be like that if we do this. But we can't do this because we're broken inside and we can't do this. So instead of confessing our brokenness and asking God to help us and grow us, let's fake it and lie and pretend. And that happens all the time. All of us that have walked in the church for any length of time have seen those things happen over and over and over. What the church desperately, desperately needs to know is that the gospel of Jesus Christ frees us from that. It frees us from the need to be a name. Like, who am I? Who are we? Who are we? The only name that needs glory is Jesus. Who are we to chase the glory of man when we could have glory that comes from God? Who are we to hold to things that moth and dust corrupt when we realize we have a loving father that has destined us for eternity with him? Who are we to hold back things here when in Jesus he has already given us all things? Who are we? But to focus on the kingdom of heaven. And I I just couldn't help but think, you know, here's this story where these guys are selling fields and they're You get this example of what's really important to these people as they give. And then what is Jesus' teaching? Is there a field teaching that maybe comes to mind? Where he says in Matthew 13, 44, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. The point of that is like, hey, the kingdom of heaven is infinitely more valuable than anything else. And it's worth getting rid of everything. Getting rid of every, we don't need to hold anything back. We should pursue the kingdom of God with everything that we have. And nothing that we have should, should be off the table compared to the glory of the kingdom of God ahead of us. Amen, church? Amen? So my prayer is, I mean, sermons about these sorts of things can come off super heavy. But here's the, thing, here's the reality of it, man. God has already given you more than you could ever imagine. We don't need to withhold. We don't need to scheme. We don't need to pretend to be something that we're not. We need to look to the gospel. We need to understand the fear of God. We need to search our own hearts to see if there's areas he wants to grow us, whether it be in honesty or whether it be in generosity, whatever the case may be. And we need to give God freedom to work in our lives. 
So Mitch and the gang are going to lead us in a couple of songs, and I want to encourage us to take some opportunity even right now to do just that, to just pray, to seek the Lord, to worship Him. Praise God, you do not treat me today like you did Ananias then. Because we are on evil, uh, evil, we are on even ground at the foot of the cross. Evil ground, whatever. Same thing, we are equal at the cross. Only the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ is the difference. Amen. Father, as we worship you, Lord, we, we just seek to take opportunity to turn our eyes and our attention to you and to your cross. God, may your gospel do work in our heart. May your Holy Spirit move through this place. May our, our singing be empowered by your spirit and motivated by your love. And then, God, as we leave this place, Lord, help us to be that, to be gospel people, changed by your gospel seeking to encourage and love others, people who love you, Lord, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and who love our neighbors as ourselves. But the only way we will ever be able to do that is by your Spirit and as we're focused upon your cross. So lead us and empower us, we pray in Jesus' name. Let's sing. Consoler, saints, and angels.